Let's open our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. To 1 Timothy chapter 3. And specifically verses 8 through 13. But also you may want to be uh, placing a marker in Acts chapter 6 as well. But first to 1 Timothy chapter 3 in verses 6 through 18. Acts chapter 6. Qualifications for deacons. We're going to get off elders, pastors, bishops for a while, and now we're going to move to our deacons. As Paul continues to give instruction in 1 Timothy for conduct in the household of God, he moves from the qualifications for the elder, pastor, and bishop to qualifications for those who would serve as deacons. If you'll recall, the terms elder, pastor, and bishop are used interchangeably in the New Testament. They're not synonyms, they are, but they are used interchangeably for the same office. Each of those terms stresses a different aspect of the office. Elder, pastor, and bishop. Now, the list in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8-13, through 13, with regard to qualifications for deacon, is similar, but not identical to that of elder. But before we actually look at this list, let's go ahead and move on over to Acts chapter 6, and I'd like to begin there. I'll tell you why as we get there. Acts chapter 6, beginning in the first verse. The church has grown. It's it's still early in the church. The, The text begins now at this time. We don't know exactly what this time was, but it was still early in the history of the church. And, now the, and the church has grown and grown. We know it had the uh, 3,000, 5,000. We don't know how many people were here at this time. Now, obviously, they're not all meeting at the same building. There were no large mega churches in the ancient world. That's how many people were meeting in Jerusalem itself. We also don't know how large Jerusalem was. There are estimates everywhere from 3 million people to 20,000 people, which shows you that in fine historians are on both ends of that the number. So it shows you how difficult it is. To, to determine populations of ancient cities. I think it's, it's fair to say Rome had about a million people. I think it would be unfair to think that Jerusalem had three million. At least that's, that wouldn't, I think it would be difficult to sustain that. But they probably had more than 20. Um, but s- somewhere in between, the, the church was growing in leaps and bounds, and Satan wasn't going to let that go un, un, uh, untested. And in this chapter, chapter 6, actually we see two of Satan's favorite methods of attacking the church. And he's employed these these two methods throughout the entire history of the church. The first one that we'll see, and the only one we'll study tonight, is internal dissension. And then in the last part of this chapter and on into the next couple, he will uh, use external persecution. Internal dissension and external persecution. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number... The disciples uh, are a term for for believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. We've studied this extensively in our Life of Christ series and on Sunday morning in the Gospel of John. We won't uh, study it extensively here, but these are people in this context who have trusted Jesus Christ to receive the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. At this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. Dissension arose almost immediately in the new and in the growing and in the excited church. A lack of unity. Now this is what Jesus prays for. John chapter 17, right before he dies. It's a concern of his 
Of course, he had he understood from his divine omniscience that it would be a problem, but he prayed for it. He prayed that we would be one, all of us would be one, as the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit were one, that there would be the same unity within the church, within the church universal, but also within local churches. There would be the same unity that exists within the, the, within the Godhead. Would also, that, that unity would also exist within local churches. And Satan wasn't going to let that happen. So immediately, we don't know, understand all the details, but immediately we see a lack of unity in the early church. A lack of unity within a church can not only impede the progress of the church, but a lack of unity can, in some circumstances, shut a church down, at least a local church. It'll never shut the universal church down. That's, Christ is going to build his church. The church will be here until Christ comes. But a lack of unity can stop a local church. This unity is very discouraging for a pastor who's the under-shepherd of the congregation, but it also grieves the Holy Spirit of God. Jesus Christ himself is responsible for building his church. And our Lord is also responsible for leading certain individuals into particular local churches. Here we have Hellenistic Jews, Jews that have come from outside back into Jerusalem, people who were Jewish but that had been living outside of the area, and now they've come back and they've joined the church. And also we have we have uh, Jerusalem Jews, people who were, uh, were already there and established and firm, and this had created disunity within the church. The, the, the established ones, those who had been there for some time, resented somewhat the new ones that had come in. And, uh, and they had forgotten that it was Jesus Christ that drew them there. So you have the, the old-timers are upset with the new folks. You see, oftentimes when a comfort zone has been reached by members of a local church and the Lord leads new folks into a congregation, Olsen natures have a tendency to take over. And factions can develop. And the new folks, instead of being welcomed, are resented. This is not altogether different from what happens in a young family. His mom and dad come home from the hospital with a new baby. You've probably seen that happen in other families. Maybe it even happened in your own. The child or children who have had the complete attention of mom and dad up until that point become jealous of the new addition and sometimes treat the innocent infant rather poorly. We excuse this behavior as human nature, but as a parent we certainly perceive it for what it is. It's jealousy based upon insecurity. Thankfully, when the child sees that the parent still loves them and that the little thing's not quite so bad after all, civil behavior typically returns. But it is a problem in churches, and it was a problem from the very beginning. Disunity based upon factions that had developed between the old-timers and the new folks. I think at Pine Valley we have... One advantage that some others don't have in that, with the exception of three families, everybody's new here. There were three of us that started it, so everybody is new in a sense. Some are just newer than others. Everyone has had the experience of walking into Pine Valley for the first time, and uh, you know what it feels like then to be the new kid on the block. It's tough to try a new church. 
Remember the first time you did? There, was un, there were unknowns to that. What would it be like? Is he a heretic? What kind of music do they have? Am I properly dressed? You know, all, all the things that go through people's minds. Are we going to have to stand up and introduce ourselves? Boy, I don't want to do that. Do they speak in tongues there? There are all kind of things that go through a person's mind when they first come to a church. And it, they take an emotional risk to enter those doors. It is an emotional risk to try a new church. And you did it. Every single one of you here, because the other two families aren't represented tonight, so every single one of you here had to do it for the first time. So you know how it feels to enter that realm of the unknown. Now, fortunately, fortunately, at least if you're still here, I assume you were welcomed. You were loved. And you probably thank God for leading you to the church. I hope you did. I, I hope that's who led you here. In fact, I pray all the time in my pastoral prayer time that, that, God, that, that God the Holy Spirit, our Lord Jesus Christ, would lead those particular people into this flock that he wants to have here. I pray that he leads those people here. And sometimes I have to pray that if there's somebody here that, that ought not to be here, that ought to be worshiping in another flock, that would be more happy, more fulfilled, more ministered to in another place, that he would gently and, and without any kind of uh, uh, antagonism move them into that flock. It's okay with me. I want to minister to those that God leads here. But God led you here. And he also led the person sitting next to you, and in front of you, and behind you. And we're all new in that sense. So since we're all new in that sense, I, I know that you're less inclined to be unloving and unwelcoming uh, to others who, who come in walking in the same shoes that you walked in in times past. And I appreciate that because we're all new. Now, in Jerusalem it wasn't that way. You, you had your established group and you had your new group. Uh, the, the Hellenistic group, Jews were the new group. The he, Hebrews, these are Jewish people that have now trusted Jesus Christ, were the established group. And the problem is rather vaguely related, but it, there was a problem. The Hellenistic Jews, the new folks, felt like their widows were being slighted. Now, the, the text actually says, overlooked in the daily serving of food. Now, if, if we think about this carefully, the, the situation probably was not, as, as sometimes has been oversimplified, I think, that the apostles were literally waiting on tables. There was too many people there for that to be the, the case. There weren't enough apostles to wait on tables all day long every day and get half of them waited on if the numbers, if the numbers uh, are correct, and they certainly are, and, and we understand how many people were in this Jerusalem church. But part of the daily serving of food wasn't necessarily the apostle handing the food to someone else, it was more likely the apostles handling the offerings and making sure that different people uh, had the right uh, the monies, particularly the widows, in order to buy the food or to procure the food or to make some, sure someone brought them the food. So there was a problem, and it was brought up. It was brought up by the Hellenistic Jews. It was brought up by the new folks. In chapter 6, verses 2 through 4, read with me. In the 12, these are the 12 apostles. This is a... Uh, I assume, because Paul hasn't come into the picture, it's either a title, and sometimes it is, but it could be 
the 11 plus Matthias, the one that had been elected before. There's dispute about whether that was a reasonable election, but there's at least 12 of them at this time, if this is not just a title. But these are the 12 apostles. The 12 summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us, for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables or in order to handle this particular type of situation but select men or select from among you brethren seven men of good reputation full of the spirit and of wisdom whom we may put in charge of the task but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word so the 12 apostles very wisely just like Moses had to do in the Old Testament the 12 apostles very wisely delegated this particular task to um, to qualified men, men that are qualified not necessarily in their technical ability, but first with regard to their character. The same way that we saw when with regard to elder, pastor, and bishop, it was primarily character that was the first qualification. I want you to to understand from the outset that that in no way were the apostles saying that to handle this particular aspect of ministry was beneath them. That's a total misunderstanding of this passage. They are not saying that it was beneath them to handle this particular type of ministry. What, what, what was the truth, however, was that there were other people within that congregation that could just as easily handle that particular task, while those particular people that could just as easily handle this task couldn't necessarily handle the duties of the apostles see the apostles could have done both but the other people couldn't have done the apostolic work the work needs to be done so it needs to be spread out let me give you an illustration and i, I want to be uh, very sincere and upfront with you about this i don't consider myself too good to do anything at this church and i have done pretty much everything uh, in the in the past it was within the last year i don't know if you know this but on sunday mornings when we used to meet over here if it was to rain before the service uh, my son David and I would get here early and we'd go and sweep the parking lot uh, so that we could use all the, all the spots that were out there. Well, one day I was sweeping the parking lot before the service in my, in my dress clothes, and here comes Elliot Johnson. He happened to be our speaker for that day. Didn't say anything about it until actually I was taking him to the airport. And I, and I had a fascinating conversation with him. After we got through some pleasantries about the sermon that he had given and my appreciation of it, he said, listen, i got a question I want to ask you. Sure, what's, what's up? Because he's one of my mentors. I trust him and, and uh, respect him very much. He said, I noticed you and your son were out there sweeping the parking lot this morning. I said, yeah, I sure was. He said, why were you doing that? I said, because we need every spot. Because there's some low spots, and if we don't have every spot, we're going to have people parking on the street and, and out in the neighbors. And he said, no, no, you're missing the point of my question. Why are you doing that? And I said, you know why I'm doing that. I don't feel like I'm any better than anybody else. I'd be happy to do it. He said, no, you're missing my question again. Why are you doing it? I said, well, because it needs to be done. And he said, Bruce, are there no other men in the church that would be happy to sweep that parking lot for you? And I said, I'm sure there are. I'm sure there would be plenty if, if, uh, if they knew about it. And he said, yeah, now you're starting to see. You see, it's not, that, it's not that you're above doing that. But now you're out here, your, your pants are wet up into your knees. They're splashed with mud. You're supposed to get up there and preach. It, it, that's something that they not, can't necessarily do. They could, both of you could sweep the parking lot. Neither one of you is too good to do it. Both of you could. 
But both of you can't get up and give the sermon. So if you're out there wearing yourself out, getting yourself all dirty and messy before the thing starts, not only have you diminished your readiness to preach the sermon, you've also taken a task away from someone else who would have gladly done it and given and taken away an opportunity for them to serve the church. That's a sass point. We moved shortly after that, so it hasn't come up again, but if we ever do happen to move back over here and you want to sweep the parking lot, put your name on the list, I'll be happy to let you do it. But the, but the point is, no pastor, no elder, no bishop should ever consider themselves too good to take the trash out. Nobody's too good to do it. It's just that there are some tasks that, that are more specific, that, if, that, that need to be done by a certain giftedness, and if there's a task that, that requires either a different giftedness or a broader giftedness, then that, the idea is delegation is a good thing. And that's all that was going on here. It doesn't mean that Peter felt like he was too good to handle the widow situation. In fact, knowing Peter, he would have loved to handle the situation with the widows, or John, or any of the others. So what we have here is a selection. Now I want you to watch. A very fine question was asked. Are there any passages that demonstrate the validity of a congregational form of government? This is one that is used when that discussion comes up. Because the twelve summon the congregation of disciples. Now this is not the congregation of the twelve. Now this is the entire congregation. And they said, it's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Again, you see, they're not saying it's not desirable for us to serve tables. You see, it's not desirable for us to neglect the Word of God in order to serve tables. So they, they order the congregation to select these particular men from amongst themselves. And then after that, they're going to give a stamp of approval to these men. Select from among you, brethren, seven men. Now, there's a lot of discussion about deacons, whether they're male or female. I'll get into that in just a few minutes. But I want you to know this particular word, men, here is not the, the general word for mankind. This, this is the word for male. Seven men, but watch, of good reputation, full of the Spirit, and full of wisdom. Now, in the beginning, those were the only three qualifications. Of good reputation, full of the Spirit, and of full of wisdom, whom, I, whom we may put in charge of the task. But we will devote ourselves to two things. Now, watch the order of them. Prayer and then the ministry of the Word. Prayer and then the ministry of the Word. Now, the statement finds approval with the, again, with the whole congregation. So, uh, to answer the question, are there any passages? This, this is one. There are others when the whole congregation was, uh, was consulted. Uh, but this is one of the ones used by, for example, the, uh, generally Baptists would use this to, to, um, to validate a congregational form of government. Uh, I would use it to, to, to validate a congregational form of government. Uh, you'll find the more you study ecclesiology, the study of the church, it's, uh, we have uh, a lot of uh, filling in some blanks to do. The scriptures don't come out and say dogmatically as much as, as we'd like to sometimes exactly how particular uh, functions within the governing of a local church should take place. Um, there are certainly general principles for that. But this is one of those places that, that congregationalists would, or those who hold a congregational form would point to. So it finds approval with the whole congregation, and they choose, and then they see the men. Stephen... A man full of faith. Now, he's going to be the Stephen. This, this is the same guy that's going to get uh, stoned in the next uh, chapter or two. Stephen, a man full of faith under the Holy Spirit. So he certainly meets the qualifications, does he not? Uh, Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, 
Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. So they choose these seven men, all of whom have Greek names. Now that's interesting. All of the men that are chosen first have Greek names. Now some Hebrew Christians had Greek names too. But I want you to watch and see what, what certainly appears to be a nuance of the brilliance of the original apostles. Who brought the complaint in the first place? Who said our widows are not being taken care of? The Hellenists. The Greeks. And you see at least what they might have done? At least there's a hint of it anyway. They take people from that camp, appoint them in, to, to handle that particular situation. It's kind of like if you come to me and there's something that you want done in the church, uh, you want a parking lot paved, and, and I may very well say, that's a great idea. Why don't you head that up? You see? And, and if it's something that's very near and dear to you and you're very passionate about it, you're going to take the ball and run with it. If you came just because you had a bright idea that day and it wasn't really that important to you after all, you'd probably run away from it. <laughs> but but this, the, what, the, what the apostles do is pretty brilliant. They pick people at least that look like they're from the Hellenist group. Now, some of these people, you, you know Stephen, of course. Philip appears later in Acts, an important role, as an important uh, evangelist. Uh, Luke doesn't mention Procreus, Nicanor, Timon, or Parmenas again. Uh, Nicholas was a Gentile who had become a Jew by a, a proselyte process and then became a Christian later. He came from Antioch of Syria. I only mention that because Antioch becomes the center of Christianity later. Now look at verse 6 of chapter 6. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them, which was a way of, of demonstrating their support of them. In the, in the same way when we ordain someone and we lay hands upon them, we're saying we, we're giving them the a seal of approval. You can go out and you say, yes, I'm Pine Valley. They can call up and say, hey, you ordained Gene Brown? I'll say, yes, I ordained Gene Brown. What do you want to know about him? You know, I trust him. I know his doctrine. I know his character, and he's a good man. Or Fred Stowe or whoever it may be. That's part of the whole ordination process. Now, I want you to notice here the word deacon's never used. Is it? If you were careful in your observation, the word deacon is not used here. But most New Testament authorities believe that this was the, at least the beginnings of the office. Now, back to chapter 3 of 1 Timothy in verse 8. We'll see a, a, a list, just like we had for the elders and bishops and pastors. We see a list for those who will serve in this office of deacon. Now, while you're turning there, let me, let me make sure you understand this. The term deacon in, in the New Testament Greek means essentially one who serves. Everyone in a church is a deacon in that sense. Everyone serves, some to a greater or lesser degree, but everyone is a deacon in that sense, in terms of ministry. But what we're talking about here is the office of deacon. It's, it's different than, than everyone who ministers. Okay? Now, look, deacons likewise. So by, the, by, by saying likewise, we, we know we're coming up a different category. This is not the same category as bishop. Deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued, nor addicted to much wine, or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let these also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Now, verse 11 is a challenging verse. We'll spend a little bit of time on it. It's translated women, also could be translated wives. I believe that's how it should be understood. Wives of the deacons must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate and faithful in all things. 
And then back in verse 12 to the deacons themselves, let deacons be husbands of only one wife. We spoke about that last time. I'll just only mention it briefly tonight. And good managers of their children and of their own households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is Christ Jesus. If you've served as a deacon this particular office, now if you serve in any capacity in a church, you can look to the judgment seat of Christ with confidence. If you've served in any capacity, if you've prayed along with those who prayed tonight, that will be a source of blessing for you at the judgment seat of Christ. That is, that is an absolute fact. And I, I like what George Meisinger said on Sunday, that it wasn't something to be taken away. Once you get it, you got it. I think in, in, with the possible exception of an extreme apostasy that one might get into. But you also notice here that the, uh, that the list is for a specific category of person, someone with the office of deacon. And if, that's, if that is the way that the Lord has ordained for you to serve, then you will have a high standing and great confidence in the faith. This does not mean you should become arrogant. There's nothing to become arrogant about any more than there's anything to become arrogant about, about anything that one does in the church. But it is something that should be respected. Those in the, in the local church should respect, not not revere or fear in that in that sense, but should respect those who serve, as in this particular office. Now let's look at the list here. It's, you might notice it's shorter than the list was for elder. First, men of dignity, and in, in, uh, means in verse eight means uh, worthy of respect, not double tongued, means not two faced. That, that's a word that I've used from time to time. Maybe it, maybe it doesn't mean anything to you, but, but you know what being two-faced means? Or being, speaking out of both sides of your mouth. You heard that one before? You know, saying one thing but meaning something else. Or saying one thing to one person and then looking somebody else right in the eye and saying the opposite. Now, deacons can't be that way. They, they need to let their yes be yes, and their no needs to be no. And if it's unpopular, then it's unpopular. And you've got to do what you feel like is right before the Lord. It means unhypocritical. It means that you're honest. It means that you're sincere. It means that you have integrity. All that is bound up in that one concept. And like the elder, pastor, bishop, the deacon cannot be addicted to much wine. I think the, the, the understanding that should be obvious. If, if someone is addicted to much wine, then they've turned the control of their body over to something other than the Holy Spirit. And remember, the original deacons, if we were to understand Stephen and Philip and the like as the original deacons, they, they were to be full of wisdom, full of the Holy Spirit, not full of wine. Okay. It doesn't say that a deacon can't have a glass of wine. That's not what it says. And in our, in our church, if one of our deacons wanted to drink wine, that would be perfectly fine, provided they did it like everything else in moderation, and that the wine did not take over control of their soul. Number four is not fond of sordid gain. Oftentimes deacons are the ones that handle the money. And you don't want anybody that's greedy and has uh, is convicted of embezzlement handling the money at a church. The, the deacon needs to be, in a sense, above reproach. When, you, when they're back there counting the money, nobody needs to be walking by thinking, I wonder if they're taking skimming 10% off the top. You, you should, that shouldn't even have to go uh, uh, through your mind. But you know what's happened? A year and a half ago, I went to a, a, a church law seminar, and it happens all over the country, where deacons have been found that they are skimming the cash. And that's, um, that's a terrible thing, and they've got the wrong people handling it. 
That's why we have two people, actually three people, end up counting our funds on Sunday morning. We have uh, two men that count it when it first comes in, and then our CPA counts it within about 30 minutes after that, and a complete record is, is made of it. So not fund of sordid gain. Um, number five, holding the faith with a clear conscience. This describes a man of conviction, but also a man of conviction who acts in harmony with his beliefs. You know, if you're going to have a clear conscience then you've got to be acting consistently with what you say you believe or what you claim that you believe. And that's back to the non-hypocritical thing. A hypocrite is going to either say one thing and, and uh, do another or is going to believe one thing and then behave in, a, in another way. You've got to be able to sleep at night. And to be able to sleep at night, you've got to have a clear conscience. Now, it doesn't mean the day was easy. It doesn't mean the decisions were easy. And believe me, because I've been there and watched them oftentimes... Deacon boards have very difficult decisions to make because they can't please everybody. Sometimes you you come up a situation where you know that at least half of the people are going to be displeased by a decision you make. Now, how how can you be a man pleaser then? You can't. You've just got to do what you're convicted is right. That's also why you have to be walking in fellowship with God and not not, not fond of sordid gain. And finally, the, the last qualification, at least in this section, we'll get to uh, some more family qualifications in a moment, but the last qualification is beyond reproach or above reproach, and that is uh, the same qualification that was given to an elder. It's an overarching qualification that, that means that that is a person of um, good, re- good reputation against whom no accusation could be made that would be immediately believable. You see the point? No accusation could be brought that would be immediately believable. If an accusation would be brought, your first impression would be saying, I know them. They would never do that. I've known them for years. They would never do something like that. Okay? Now, that doesn't mean that, that deacons and elders, too, don't do things sometimes that are totally apart from what we might expect. But the first expectation should be no way would they have ever done that. That's, that is, in a broad sense, what it means to be above reproach. Now, this above reproach must be true at the present time, but also in past history. This is not a future ideal to which one might, one might uh, uh, desire to uh, obtain. This is not some, something in the future. Okay, well, I'm going to pick somebody now that's extremely flawed in their character, and then I'm hoping that if we put them in that position, they'll grow into it. That doesn't work that way. They need to be men of the, this, this particular character right now. Now, in verse 11, the New American Standard says, Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Now, Paul moves to what looks like another category here, and it's the, it's the what is this other category that has drawn a lot of attention in the literature. Is this a deaconess? Has he introduced a third office here of of women deacons, not women who serve. That's understood. But women who would serve in this particular office, as he introduced that, or is he speaking of the wives of the deacons? In my view, he's speaking of the wives of the deacons. I think more detail would be expected if Paul was introducing a third office. It would also be, um, as uh, John MacArthur, who has uh, a sharp wit sometimes, John MacArthur was asked one time why he doesn't have women deacons in his church 
And he replied back rather acerbically, well, the first time you can show me a, a woman deacon who's the, the uh, husband of one wife, then I'll be happy to appoint her. Well, he was being a bit acerbic when he said that, but I understand why he did. Uh, I, I don't believe that this, is, um, that this is a separate list. I believe that this is... Um, that these, this is talking about those who serve as deacons' wives. Now, you deacons' wives didn't think you were going to be brought up tonight, did you? But, but you are. Deacons' wives must be dignified. Deacons' wives must not be malicious gossips, but temperate and faithful in all things. Uh, dignified, again, means worthy of respect. And uh, a deacon's wife should be in that situation. They shouldn't be those who... Uh, Slander, unmercifully slander other people, then unmercifully gossip. That's not appropriate behavior for one who would be a deacon's wife. A deacon's wife should be temperate, someone who's well-balanced, and also faithful in all things, which means trustworthy. It's worth a note, and we have time for me to do it, so I will. It's worth a note that you don't see qualifications for the elder's wife. And that has been uh, been widely discussed in the literature as well. Uh, it is... The, the the office elder, pastor, bishop requires a unique gifting. And while we talk about ministry teams, Chuck Swindoll often talks about Chuck and, and Cynthia as a, as a ministry team, oftentimes the elder, pastor, bishop is on an island by himself. Or those who serve in that capacity in a church are on islands by themselves. Their, their wives can't help them prepare the sermon. Their, their wives can't help function in some of the other ways. But not so with deacons' wives. You see, deacon's wife certainly can help in the, in the functioning of that particular office, and that happens even in our church as well. You know, we have our, our, uh, our minutes are not written, they're written down by us, but they're typed out by one of our deacon's wives. You know, certain of the, uh, in times past, when our CPA served as our treasurer, his, uh, his wife handled a lot of the actual paperwork. So that's why some, in fact, many New Testament scholars believe that you have qualifications for deacons' wives, but not necessarily for the elder's uh, uh, wife, although it's always expected that the elder's wife would be a person of dignity, that the elder's wife would be not a malicious gossip, but it'd be temperate and faithful in all things. But the deacon's wife often has to serve along with that deacon in the function of that office. And so says um, uh, quite a few uh, New Testament Writers. Now, one note, and, and when we studied Romans chapter 16, Paul mentions a lady named Phoebe, who he calls a deacon in that, in that sense, or a deaconess. It's, it's uh, um, of a church in Sincrea. Now, Paul is going to entrust a lot to this particular woman. She is very trustworthy. But it's very doubtful that she actually held the office of deacon. She was serving the church in that sense. But uh, there's, uh, there is great doubt as to whether she was serving in the office. Uh, Wayne House said, The office of deaconess is not certain in the New Testament church, but the preponderance of evidence suggests that these women had this ministry, for it is certainly seen in the post-apostolic period. They had the ministry without necessarily holding the office. Now in chapter 3, verse 13, 
uh, or verse 12 rather, Paul moves back to the deacons. Let deacons be husbands of only one wife. I think we uh, spent most of our time last time on that phrase. I, I believe that the same phrase applies to those who hold deacons. There were three um, major spheres. There was a, not a polygamist. Everyone would agree that that, uh, that should be avoided. Faithful to one's present wife, that is certainly a given. Uh, married once, and then there were different views about how a person could be uh, married once, and that's uh, something that we covered last time, and for the sake of time, we must move on uh, today. But the same things we said last time with regard to the elder uh, whole true of the deacons. They also must be good managers of their own children and of their own household. You see, if you're going to take care of the affairs of the family of God, then it just makes sense that you would have taken care of the affairs of your own family. Uh, a man's ministry, whether you're a pastor, an elder, bishop, a deacon, or serving in any capacity in any church, a man's ministry, his first ministry and his primary ministry is always to his family. Never forget that. The good men have forgotten that uh, to their own detriment. Uh, names that you would recognize, I don't intend to, to use them tonight, but names that you would recognize have forgotten that. And when they were in their 70s, their wives came to him and said, you had time for everybody else, but you never had any time for me. I'm out of here. And it, and it really was a tragic thing. It is a tragic thing when that happens. No matter what, what office you hold, no matter what, uh, what, what way you function in a church, always remember, always remember that your family is your first ministry. And if something has to, uh, if something has to go, it's, it's not the family. The family's got to come first. For if you are a so-called success in the ministry in the church, but a failure in your own family ministry, then the, the Scriptures count you as a failure in terms of ministry as, as, as a whole. So please, if you're ever in a position of having to make a choice, take care of that family first. God will understand it. Now, the faithful reward for a deacon, we see two that are mentioned here. One is a good reputation. After someone serves as a deacon and serves faithfully and serves with this kind of character, then they will be rewarded in time with a good reputation. And then also, uh, the, the text has a high standing. The, the, the text also says great confidence in the faith. Uh, they have increased confidence in dealing with other people and with God. And presumably, this is being built upon a clear conscience. Now, you notice here, at least not at this point, Paul says nothing about the duties of deacons. He has simply talked about the character that's required. He has not said nothing about the specifics of the duty. He will later. For example, he's going he's to bring the whole widow thing up again. And one of the very, the very first and primary things that a deacon is to do in a church is to make sure the widows and orphans are taken care of. So there, there will be specifics that come up in other places in Scripture, but not here. Um, this would, would tell us that Paul is not necessarily associating the specifics of the task that the deacons will be performing, but rather the, the quality of their character so that they should be able to perform a wide variety of tasks. He seems to be indicating that the deacons should function as official servants of the church in whatever capacity the elders desire to see them function. In effect, deacons are 
there to assist the elders. And that's not a derogatory idea at all. That uh, should be a, a very honoring idea. They are there to assist the elders. And in fact, our church constitution states that the responsibility of the deacons, the deacon board is to, quote, assist the pastor in the shepherding of the flock. And this, I believe, our deacon, do, uh, deacon board does faithfully in accordance with the word of God. Well, next time we'll get into more of the heart of this particular epistle. And Paul is going to bring out some more information about how one ought to conduct oneself in the household of God. But now we've seen the, the qualifications for both elder and for deacon, the two offices that he brings up. Both these offices have to be functioning efficiently, and both have to be occupied by men of character in order for the entire body to be glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ.